The following is an exclusive podcast for the Dermatology Digest. Today, journalist Lizette Hilton sits down with dermatologist Sheila Friedlander, Scripps Clinic, San Diego, to discuss recent developments in tinea capitis, including epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment. Here's Lizette and Dr. Friedlander. Today we're talking with Dr. Sheila Fallon Friedlander, staff Scripps Clinic Carmel Valley, San Diego, and Professor Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Thanks for talking with us today, Dr. Friedlander. Oh, it's a pleasure, Lizette. Always a pleasure to speak with you about my favorite topic, of course, fungus. <laughs> All right, and today we are talking about tinea capitis. Um, what do we know today about tinea capitis that we might not have known years ago? Well, first of all, we know now that it is not just a disease of preschoolers. When I was in training, I was always told to think about tinea capitis when a young child, two to five years of age, came into the office with a scaling head. And we now know that although that is the most common age to get this fungal infection, it can infect neonates, babies as old as one, two, three weeks of age, and it can affect older people, um, particularly postmenopausal women who are often caregivers for uh, young children. And so it becomes a vicious cycle where the grandma has it and then gives it to the child, or the child had it and gave it to grandma. And so when we're thinking about um, the demographics, when we're thinking about epidemiology, we need to take keep that in mind. So how do we explain this? I think now we know that what protects us from fungal infections in our scalp, are there are a number of things. There are the cathocytins, there are a number of things that help fight infection. But we now know that there are medium-chain triglycerides. So these are, are fatty, fat, fatty acids that are in sebum. So it is the sebum or the oil that we all hate when we get to the adolescence um, that's in our scalp that contains these medium-length uh, free fatty acids, triglycerides, which help prevent infection. So it's interesting because we don't have much of that when we're young, right? Before adolescence, we don't have much oil in our scalp. And then we have it during adolescence and adulthood. And then when we get older, just think about it, in postmenopausal women, they don't have hormones as much as they did before, and they don't have as much, we believe, sebum. They get drier in general, and they probably don't have as much of the medium chain uh, free fatty acid triglycerides present. So uh, we can think of now that there is a, a sort of biochemical or, or an expl- biological explanation for why when we're very young, young children before we have sebum, we can get this disease. And then as we get to an age where there's lots of sebum in our, our scalp, we don't have it. And then as we get older, we again become more uh, vulnerable to the disease. So that. I think it's something new. So whenever you have a patient who has tinea capitis, a child usually, right, you need to ask about family members, particularly if there are any postmenopausal women. I guess we don't want to put it in those words, right? Just say if there are <laughs> women who are caretakers in the house, you need to think that they might be infected as well. So I think that's one of the very important things. Also, uh, I think 
we know talking about biochemical explanations for the disease we also have some genetic information and there was beautiful work done several years ago about uh, by susan robdell Amon, who is from um who had been in ohio at the time and was looking at uh, tinea capitis in children and doing genetic analysis actually of um of the bugs and of children and found that there isn't one genetic mutation that leads to this disease. There isn't one bug that's a super bug, but rather it looks like there are polymorphisms, so many different changes in the organisms that um, make them more um, virulent and make us more susceptible to the infection. So that's something certainly um, that is new within the last 10 to 20 years. And um, the last thing, that I think is really important to recognize is that the nature of the bug or organism that's giving us trouble changes over time. So when I was a little girl, eons ago, haha, um, most infections were caused by microsporum adwini, and it was important um, that that was the bug because you could pick it up with wood's lamp. So a physician could go in and shine a wood's lamp on the child's head, and it would glow. Uh, you would have a fluorescence, uh, and that would help make the diagnosis. Well, in the last 20 to 30 years, um, we just don't see that much of MO20 anymore, and the predominant organism in the United States has been trichophyton tonsurans, and it's believed that this bug came up to us, and I keep saying bug, and I mean fungus, but the fungus actually started probably in Central and South America, and then through immigration came into the United States. But the fact of the matter is that that organism is the most common cause of tinea now in the United States, and it doesn't fluoresce with wood slamp. So we can't use a tool that we used to to make the diagnosis, and it is a relatively has been more difficult to eradicate. And then the last surge that we've had, so I talked about when I was little, there was microsporum adwini, and now for the last even 30 years, I could probably say with confidence, it's been mostly trichophyton tonsurans, which is an anthropophilic, meaning spread from person to person mm -hmm. infection. And now, in the last decade, we're seeing a lot of what we're referring to as African species in both Europe, Canada, and the United States. And there was a beautiful study that was published from Canada that showed that they had seen a change in organisms and many more uh, cases of trichophyton violation, pseudonents, and some microsporum. And these were all thought to be um, what we would call African species that had come from immigrants from Africa. Now, why is it important? Do we really care? Well, these organisms seem to be a little less sensitive to terbenafin, which has been the drug of choice for the last decade, at least, I would say, or two in the United States. So knowing the population at risk, recognizing that, yes, young preschool-aged children are more likely to have it, but even babies can have it, and um, people who are taking care of children, middle-aged women can have it, that's important to know. Knowing the predominant fungus in the area in which you live, which in the United States right now is trichophyton tonsurans, but you need to be aware we're seeing more of these African species 
Uh, and knowing about that is important because the drug of choice changes. So treatment, as I said, can vary with the predominant organism you're dealing with. So when, again, when I was young, everyone used griseofulvin. When I was in training, everyone used griseofulvin. But it was noted over time a relative tolerance to griseofulvin. And by that, I mean that we were needing higher and higher doses of griseofulvin for longer and longer periods of time to eradicate the organism. So, um, again, 20 to 30 years ago, we started looking um, more more in the range of 20, 25 years ago, we started looking at alternate therapies, and beautiful studies were done and sponsored, I might say, in many cases by um, the pharmaceutical companies, and it was found that there were other options, particularly terbenafin, and it was discovered that terbenafin is a better drug for anthropophilic species, meaning trichophyton tonsurans particularly. So we now, I would think that if you talk to a dozen pediatric dermatologists, at least 11 of the 12 would tell you, oh, I used terbenafin as first line, because more than 90% of our cases are trichophyton tonsurans, and terbenafin works better. But it is important to remember that there are important um, cases where that doesn't hold. And one case is, if it is clear to you that the patient who comes in got their infection from an animal rather than a human, then you are going to want to use griseofulvin. So what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. I mean that even though I told you 90% of cases are from trichophyton tonsurans, which have been transmitted from person to person, there are a significant number of cases that are per- uh, transmitted from animals. And what do I mean by animals? Well, again, in the United States, cats are dogs, and they often transmit microsporum canis and it's quite ironic that it was named microsporum canis when in my world it's usually microsporum catus meaning that it's often kittens or cats that transmit this so these animals can transmit to humans and when they do the good news is it fluoresces on our with our old friend the woods lamp so we can use the woods lamp again to be helpful in making this diagnosis but the bad news is that it doesn't seem to respond as well to trebenafin in the cases where you know you're dealing with a, an animal transmission, as again, then you would want to culture, of course, so you'll know eventually what the organism it is, but in the meantime, use um, griseofulvin rather than terbenafin. And then the last set of people that we need to think about, as I mentioned before, are those who are infected with, quote-unquote, African species. And who are the high-risk groups for that? Those are immigrants from Africa, Somalia. I have seen multiple cases in Somalian immigrants, and these people often have trichophyton violation or one of the other African species, and they will do better with griseofulvin. What if you're not sure that your patient has tinea captus? You know you're worried about psoriasis, you're worried about um, alopecia areata or trichotillomania. The dermatoscope is very helpful in making this diagnosis. And um, many people have looked at this over the last decade, and there have been a number of publications looking at dermoscopy uh, to distinguish between different kinds of uh, scalp disorders. And what you see is if you use your dermoscope on a patient who has um, tinea, often you'll see these beautiful little comma-shaped 
and also corkscrew hairs. And they look like just what they sound like. They look like little corkscrews, small hairs that have been broken off and are in corkscrew or comma shape. In addition, there's often perifollicular scale, so there'll be scale around the individual hair follicles. And this is very useful in making you certain you're dealing with tinea. This has been an exclusive podcast with the Dermatology Digest. Find more at www.thedermdigest.com. Thank you for joining us.